the subject as a whole, let me pull this on down, I want you to know first that there are basically, in fact, uh, values here, to the best of my knowledge, four views of the book of Revelation that you will find in the commentaries down through the years. In other words, no matter how they might go into the various figurative language, they're going to approach it from four different ways. And I'll tell you which one's the most common and then what happened right now. But I want you to know these views so that when somebody speaks or uses it, or you listen to uh, Billy Graham when he's in Revelation, or Henry W. Armstrong, or some of the other groups in the Protestant world, and they're in Revelation, I think if you know the view that they have of the book, it'll help you a whole lot in, in understanding why they think they, the way they do in some of that, and also help you in dealing with them and studying with them. One view is the historical view. Now, the first three views I've got there all take the position of uh, putting the date at 96 AD. And the historical view is the view that takes Revelation from the first century and brings it on down through the centuries at the present time. A good example of a view that would be most of the Protestant reformers coming out of the Protestant Reformation movement when they broke away from Catholicism, most of them, and I use the term most only because all will catch up with you, all that I have read, okay, they, they take that uh, historical view if they came out of the Reformation, and then it's a general rule the beast becomes the Pope in Rome. And so then where those various symbols and all, they will interpret it in light of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome and the persecution of, of those Christians that were breaking the world from Rome and then God's judgment eventually on that particular church. And they will come on down and they'll have various interpretations of the events in history, okay? There will be other ones that might have somebody other than the Pope in Rome in there. But suffice it to say, that's the most common and they'll bring it down through history and always, the one thing they have in common is they fully recognize that the Christians are the persecuting people, there is a persecuting force, and that God will pass judgments and the Christians will win out in the long run. And so it's interesting that whatever view they take, those principles come out. Another view is the future, and then I have it in parenthesis, in time view. All right, this position, it says all the revelation was written then, it applied to the end times, coming up to the end of the world. And so really it's not something that's to be traced historically down through the years. But when we get to the end times, and most of them will say now, you know, it's the end times. And all of the signs are right. And they'll go to Matthew 24 and some of those others we've looked at and apply that not to the destruction of Jerusalem, but to the end of the world, as it states in the uh, King James translation on Matthew 24 and verse 3. And so then they say that now we're headed to the end times and all of those signs are right. And then they're looking forward to Revelation to unfold. In other words, it hasn't fully unfolded yet. It's in the process, and they're looking forward to it, for it to go ahead and unfold. And so you might hear any number of the TV evangelists uh, speak of it in this way, and what they're really doing is taking that that was spoken there in the first century, and John's writing it. Really, it's something that was intended for the end times, and they'll place the end times right now, and then they will begin to interpret in light of those various things. For example, the, the beast might become, for example, Russia, okay, or whoever the bad guy is, maybe Hitler, if we go back a little bit, a few years earlier. But anyway, this becomes the end times in that particular view. Then, number three, 
extensive work on the writings of John, also placed Revelation along with the other works of John before that time. Then we noted that looking at the latest archaeological discoveries, that the latest discoveries, and we presented some books at the very beginning, show individuals who are now placing it before 70 AD. Uh, even men like Albright, William Albright, who was considered a liberal scholar, uh, has put it before 70, 70 AD. Okay, so here we have then the difference there and the date, and I pointed out that on number four, you have the vast majority of scholarship that actually put it at that time. Now, before I go back and look at the various four and then go through some of the slides here, when I ask this question again at the very end, we've looked at the four views. I have very, as you know, from this presentation, uh, very strong uh, feelings about the fourth one. I believe without any reservation in my mind concerning the book being written. In fact, I believe the entire New Testament uh, was written before 70 AD, and I believe it's a conclusive thing that can be proven. But what about the thing of fellowship? Uh, whatever view an individual might hold or not hold on that, should that be a matter of fellowship among Christians? Should, should it? Uh, why? Why is it something that would not become a matter of fellowship? Okay, the salvation itself. Let's say that uh, Sherwood holds view number one, Larry view number two, Herbie view number three, and I view number four. Now let's look at uh, a few things. Does it affect the way that we worship when we come together? We take the Lord's Supper. Uh, we sing, we pray, we contribute. Does it affect the morality or godliness of our life, our belief in that? And can you say that one who holds one view is going to live a more godly life than one who holds the other view? Does it affect any of our beliefs in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Does it affect our understanding of his atoning sacrifice? It doesn't, does it? In other words, that, that there is no one of us, that whatever view you hold, that is putting somebody else in a position that, where they have to indeed compromise or anything of that nature with their conscience. I started with view number one, passed very quickly through view number three, and wound up at number four. I don't think I was lost anywhere along the line. Foy uh, Wallace, in his book, makes the observation that, that he passed through the whole spectrum and wound up at four. And it's interesting, and I think I pointed out at the very beginning, I, that a majority of those who hold the fourth view at one time held one of the others because that's what they were taught, you know, initially. I do not know a single instance where anybody has ever held the fourth and went back to any of the other views after arriving there. They may. It's sort of like the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, at one time, I believed in the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I do not. Uh, now, I believe the only way the Holy Spirit works on the human heart is through the Word itself. One time I did the other, and now I do this. Was that a matter of fellowship? Same thing. It doesn't affect anything of the matters that we talked about. But again, it was interesting to me that uh, people who I know of, any number of people that one time believed in the personal indwelling, that arrived at the conclusion uh, were, you know, that we, of the non-personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I know of very few, in fact, none in the realm of scholarship, uh, that uh, arrived at, at unbelief in the personal indwelling and went back the other way. Very few in that category, like 
realm of scholarship itself. That doesn't prove it, but it takes a look at the passages. But again, nothing that involves fellowship itself. All right, now, remember when we talked on fellowship, that there is a difference between uh, understanding a command of God and willfully disobeying it, and for a Christian to be studying some doctrine, whatever it may be, and striving to come to the best understanding possible of that particular doctrine and operating to the best of his understanding. Now, saying all that we've just said, uh, why is it important to even study Revelation then? Persecution kind of don't remain faithful, they'd be lost. Okay. That means that should be a good message. That's another thing about it. We should be faithful up to, to read the slide if we expect to Okay. I think what Sherwood said is, you know, interesting to me from the standpoint that we said that as the groups have looked at it down through the years, whichever view they espouse, they, they've got at least what Sherwood just said. And that was that, that Christians should be faithful up to and including death itself. That persecution or hardship for being a Christian is no excuse. Uh, a person is not going to, we learned there, that a person is not going to be able to deny the Lord in face of persecution or hardship or suffering. And in order to get out of it, just slide under a cover, slide under a bed somewhere, go hide in a cave and forget about it. We learned from Revelation, whatever view, that that won't happen. That he said, be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And so we see that on the one hand, Christians can be persecuted, and God expects them to be faithful up to and including death. But we also see something else, no matter what, on the views. And that is that God makes a promise that in the final analysis, right will win out. And that, that's there, and it's plain. And so it's there from an encouragement standpoint that right will win out in the final analysis. Now, another point. If it's true, uh, the fourth view, if that is true, we noted that some very important things began to happen. First of all, if that is not true, there are no certainties uh, anywhere in the others. In other words, if, uh, uh, here's the difference between something fulfilled in the first century and something fulfilled down through the centuries. In the first century, we have the apostles. And we had those prophets and people that had, been, had various gifts through the laying on the apostles' hands. We don't have any apostles now. And all Roberts, to the contrary, we don't have anybody that's raised the dead or doing any of that stuff. Uh, you know, even, the, even those that are not clinically dead, you know, in some sense. But anyway, we, we don't have it. And, and we know that. Uh, that. And so the point is, if it is a book, that it is in the process being fulfilled down through the years, and it's going to, or it's going to be fulfilled at these end times, then God is in the situation of giving a prophecy of revelation where it will be left up entirely to uninspired people to interpret and apply to the specific events. Because the apostles and prophets who were guided by the Holy Spirit and confirmed with the miracles, they just simply are not here anymore. That would be the case. On the other hand, before 70 AD, you still have some of the apostles, you have numerous people with these various gifts of the Holy Spirit as the church is being established at that point in time. And they're still involved uh, at the time that this particular book is written. Also, if that is the case, number four, then 
you have a case of prophecy and its fulfillment, and then you have a case that becomes a strong evidence for the inspiration of the New Testament. Revelation represents no evidence whatsoever, and all of those other statements about a judgment represent no evidence whatsoever if it applies to something in the future, because prophecy is not evidence until it's fulfilled. It's just a statement that's there, but it has to be fulfilled before it becomes evidence itself. So if the fourth is true, then you have an extremely strong prophetic utterance uttered by the Lord himself in very much detail. In fact, next to his death, he spent more time on this than any subject. But you have very strong statements by the Lord that was fulfilled in minute and exact detail. And the statements run all the way through the New Testament, and so it becomes a sample of rule, just like in the Old Testament. Remember, one of the marks of inspiration are all these prophecies and their fulfillment. And you have the same thing, if that is the case. Okay, now anybody want to ask any questions or make any comments before we pull this sheet off? Okay. Let's look now at what we did in the very first, and sum up what we covered. We know the importance of the date itself. And I gave you eight articles with uh, statements from secular scholars and theologians now relative to the date itself. And that's where we noted that the vast majority of scholarship actually places this book before 70 AD. Then we moved on down and looked at the internal evidence within the book itself. And we noted, first of all, that all through the New Testament, there is a promise of a judgment that's going to take place during that generation. And then as we get down to the books of the New Testament written in the 60s AD, it becomes a judgment that is soon, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen because of the persecution of the people of God. Revelation speaks of a judgment that is imminent and soon. Nothing that is in the future, but it's very imminent and soon. It's speedily to occur, and it involves a persecuted people and a persecuted force, the persecuted people being the Christians. We noted that when we look at Revelation, that the internal evidence is that the Jews were still a force against Christianity. Now this is important, because even those through the years that put Revelation in 96 AD, it's interesting that when I read their commentaries, they notice this, and it's a problem with them, that the evidence indicates that the Jews were a prime persecuting force, and of course everybody knows that the Jews were not a force after 70 AD. And so the reason they went in the direction they did was, was not because of the internal evidence, but despite those statements. And it was because of this one secular statement, uh, going back to Polycarp, relative to seeing John and having something to do with the vision of Revelation. And remember when we examined that, we noted that they had a secondhand information that even of itself had a possibility of several interpretations. And based on that, we arrived at that point of putting the time or the date 96 AD, and from that point on, it was just simply carried on down. But it was interesting to know here that the oldest version of the Bible, the oldest version of the New Testament that we have is the Cyrenaic version in Aramaic. And it goes back to 150 AD, and it places Revelation before 70 AD, and it refers to the beast as being Nero. That is absolutely the oldest version of 
the New Testament that we have. Here, just briefly, I copied this. If you look in the center below the picture, I know it's small, but down there it says, Most scholars believe that Revelation and other prophecies refer to the uh, Jesus' death, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And so, simply to know that this article was in Time magazine, and it does something else. Remember, we were talking earlier about the importance of this subject. Here's where, again, the understanding of Revelation becomes very important. Not just in, in keeping with what I've already said, but the view of many people in prominent position in government towards the Arabs and Israel and the Middle East is fashioned by the view in the book of Revelation. And for example, Ronald Reagan and also uh, Jimmy Carter before him uh, have come from a religious background that gives them a view where they believe it applies to the end times. And they are looking for a big war to break out in the Middle East. And they're looking for the Israelites, the Jews, to be restored to their homeland, to that country again. Consequently, as a result of believing that those people are in some sense the real people, the people of God, and that they're going to be united with the Christians, and, and the, it puts us in a situation where no matter what, we tend to side with Israel against the Arabs. And we have done things through the centuries, or through the years, I should say, that has incurred the hatred of the Arabs. Uh, when Harry Truman had a part in establishing the nation of Israel and bringing Jews from all over the world to go back in 1947, Truman believed that concept and had that background of the book of Revelation. Well, in the process of reestablishing the nation of Israel, these Palestinians that you read so much about now, and the terrorists, this is where their hatred begins. They were flat put out of that country, and it was given to Jews. And they were put, their, everything, their land was taken away from them. And they were simply put out in what we call tent cities. Well, how would you feel if all of a sudden uh, we were not the strong country, Russia was, and they decided they're going to gather us up and march us out and put us in tents and give this land back to its rightful owners, the Indians, and then they're going to start to bring people of Indian lineage from all over the world back here and, and give them this land. Well, you can see there'd be a problem. Well, this is exactly what happens. So I'm saying the view is very important. On the one hand, salvation does not maybe hang in the balance. But it's extremely important. And we have people in high position who have been influenced uh, by this. Keep in mind that the most dominant Protestant group is the Baptist Church. And this is prevalently preached in that way within that group. And there has been a lot of influence in that line. Most of the TV evangelists that you'll see come from a background that has that view. And therefore they speak. And people here on TV hear that kind of thing from the book of Revelation itself. So I say that to emphasize to you that it is important to study this and to come to a good understanding and to be able to explain and know about the dating or at least be able to refer to the information about that because people act in keeping the way they think and the way they believe in their own minds. Not only that, but those that believe Revelation applies to the end time, obviously a lot of their preaching is going to be dealing with that today. And they do. A lot of their preaching deals with that. And they're always picking out the signs and trying to get it to stand there. All right, here's the way that it hurts also. For those people that are not believers in the Bible, the skeptic, they look at that and they can 
see that historical scholarship puts the book back there in the first century, before 70 AD, and then applied the events of that time. And then when Christians tried to make it as a prophetic book, speaking of things in our day, what it does, it tends to discredit their opinion of the Bible as a whole. They said this is just a good example of where Christians come along and try to make historical statements of purest prophecy of things that really it didn't speak of at all. And so I'm saying that the view that has brought this down has really been a tool in the hand of the, in the skeptic to actually hurt true Bible prophecy. It's sort of like we point out about miracles. Those that do these alleged miracles today, they really are not miracles. But when people who are skeptics of the Bible see that, and they can see through it, then there is a tendency on their part to put the real miracles in the same category. Because keep in mind that most of them are not that well studied in the Bible itself. And so I'm saying that it is important to study this and to come to a good understanding of these points. Another thing we noted, the definition of revelation was that it's an uncovering. It means it's, it's there so you can understand it. If revelation is intended so that nobody can understand it, then it's not, the name itself is a contradiction. It's meant to reveal and to uncover something. And it's given by God through Jesus, through the angel, and then to John. And we noted that the book says, not my opinion or anybody else's opinion, but the book said these things must soon take place. And then to the people that day, he said, blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, because the time is near. And we noted that the Greek literal there is it's to occur with speed, where it says must soon take place. The literal Greek means to occur with speed. We noted also that it was written to the seven churches in the Roman province of West the west coast of part of Asia Minor, after 70 AD, there were more churches in seven. Okay? But according to historic, historical scholars, there were only seven churches just before 70 AD. And he names the seven churches. We know on our map that these churches are all located very close together, and from secular records about John, John worked in that area. In other words, the reason John is addressing the letter to these people it's not because it's not dealing with something that's important to other people, too. In fact, the book will be copied and will get circulation and will move throughout wherever Christians are. But John had worked among those churches. And so, just like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, because he had worked there and he established that church, and so he was concerned about it. And so it is with other writers that write to people. Luke writes to Theopolis. He knew Theopolis, and he was concerned about it. And so John writes specifically simply because that, you know, that those are the people that he worked with and he knew and he wanted to get this information to them. And again, we noted that to those seven churches, we have that he had overcome. And it's done in such a way to show that there is imminent trial for those people. In other words, if he's writing to people 2,000 years later, at least in my judgment, it almost doesn't make sense that he is writing to the persecuted people, the persecuted people then saying, hang in there, and that he that overcometh, and when in reality he's not even talking to those people at all, if, if the others are correct on that point. We know that as we look at the book of Acts, the history of the church, that all of the persecution, basically, in the, those early years, 
were the Jews against the Christians. The Jews were the persecuting force. Pilate didn't really kill Jesus. Pilate wanted to let him go. It was the Jews who took his life. And so it was as we come through the history of the early church. It wasn't Rome, in a sense, that had Paul in jail. It was the Jews who wanted to take his life. And, and Rome had arrested him because of the disturbance. And he, Rome was actually trying to save him from the Jew and, and help him to escape the Jewish mob. But it was the Jews that were the persecuting force. Jesus promised judgment on the Jews. And promised that that judgment would come about in the third generation. The apostles promised judgment on those Jewish persecutors of the Christians and said in Peter that it was something that would soon come to pass. James said the same thing. Also in Peter said it's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Hebrew writer speaking the same thing. An imminent judgment coming on the Jewish persecutors of the Christians. We noted in our study the parallels between the destruction Parallels between the Lord's forecast of the destruction of Jerusalem and John's vision and revelation. And we looked at those passages and we noted that as we were reading, that we could see definite parallels in the language of what was going to happen as to what we found in Matthew 24, dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, you can see how that those people going in years back who read only from the King James Bible, and they read that end of the world, and didn't check into the Greek or anything of that nature to find out what it actually was saying or didn't know anything about any other translator. Well, then, when they saw those parallels, as they did with Revelation, then they would obviously apply that to the end of the world. They'd say, well, this is the same language that he used over in Matthew when talking about the end of the world. And so you can see, so what I'm saying is that give me nothing, put me some years by, give me absolutely nothing but a King James Bible to study from, wipe, wipe away whatever I've learned about Greek or anything, and, and I fully understand that, because that's where I started. I started out with the King James Bible and read that where it said the end of the world. And when I read through, I read the various commentaries, and I saw the various parallels. But we noted that we have a, a simple misrepresentation that I don't believe you'll find in any modern translation, and that is uh, the word doesn't mean the end of the world. It means a consummation of the age, and it had reference to the events of that time. And really, you're not going to find too much debate on that now. You just, I don't believe that you'll find too much debate among scholars on that point now. So the same passages that they once used as a parallel to the end of the world, in reality, they now found a parallel to those passages that deal with the destruction of Jerusalem. We noted that Vespasian received his commission from Nero and declared war in Jerusalem in February 870. The siege ended with the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple in August 870, and that was a grand total of three and a half years. Forty-two months, three and a half years. We know that it's interesting that in Revelation you read about this battle taking place over 1,260 days, times, times, and half a time, and 42 months. We know in it that the word dragon, devil, and Satan are all used interchangeably. We noted also that in the context, Satan is referred to in the sense that he was a personified Nero, personified in Nero. We noted that Jesus referred to Peter one time, get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, Babylon was used as a personified Satan. So was Egypt, Babylon another time. And so Satan's word simply means adversary of God. And it was not unusual to look at anyone or any country that 
interested to Peter to get thee behind me Satan. He was acting the adversary to the plan of God. Josephus mentions that after the armies of Gallus, uh, the Roman general, had besieged Jerusalem, they withdrew, and there was an interval, and the disciples fled. And we know it there in Matthew and Luke, and also in Revelation. We have a situation there where during the time of this uh, besiegement, and when all this is going to take place, that the people of God flee. And, escape. and this is true over in the Gospels. It's also true in Revelation. Eusebius and his history uh, says the church in Jerusalem fled to the mountain country of Pella beyond the Jordan. Uh, remember that Jesus told them to flee to the mountains. And this is exactly, again, what we find in the book of Revelation. We know in our Caesars that Pompey was the initial one that had conquered, command conquered Israel. But the first Caesar is Julius, and Nero was number six. And we noted from our context in Revelation how that uh, history of number six fit uh, the beast that we find in Revelation. We noted that the statement, he who overcomes would not be heard of the second death. And then in Revelation 20, those who have a part in the first resurrection, the second death is no part over them. We noted that he who overcomes and those who have a part in the first resurrection are used in a parallel sense. And we noted that in the Bible, on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, whenever God's people were going to overcome, and they were going to go back and reveal and be victorious and all, that this was depicted by a literal bodily resurrection from the grave. That's simply the way it was depicted. And so it is in Revelation that we, on the one hand, mention the first resurrection, and obviously a first resurrection implies a second and there's a first death and a second death. But the parallel is, the one who overcomes is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no part over them. So those people that hung in there, that were faithful unto death, the second death, uh, once they did depart from this world and stand before God, they had no word about the second death. The other, those that did not, the second death, uh, our eternal separation from God, would have power over them. We noted concerning the uh, use of letters, uh, such as 666, that this was an art of writing at that particular time. There were people that were studied in that. Uh, the individuals who received this letter were familiar with this kind of thing. And it was actually a coded way to put forth information that might cause you persecution if the wrong people found it out. Just like we write coded information in dealing with our enemies today. And this was purposely put in coded, and that there were those that, act, that would actually interpret it. We noted that uh, the uh, Assyrian, uh, or Assyrian version, uh, 150 AD, the Aramaic version, applies that to Nero Caesar, and other scholars have down through the years, and how you could divide it up in order to come out with the spelling of Nero Caesar. We looked at Armageddon, and we noted that the name Armageddon was derived from Mount Medigal, which was located in the valley now known as the plain of Israel, and it was the battlefield of the nations of Jewish history. You read about it in the Old Testament. And the battlefield of Mount Medigal became a universal proverb under the word Armageddon. The original Bible dictionary again refers to Philip Shaft and points out that it was used in a figurative way in the book of Revelation. And so here is a word, Armageddon, that's been around for a long time. It had reference.
reference to many battles that had taken place in a certain place in the Old Testament, and therefore it came to be used in a figurative way anytime there was a great battle that was going to take place. Okay, now, anybody with any uh, questions or comments, observations that you'd like to make concerning the book itself?